You're listening to the Rua Space Podcast. Hello, friends, and welcome to the Rua Space Podcast, where we help you make space for the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in your everyday life. I'm Phil, and today I am really honored. It is my great joy to have Shane Claiborne join us. Shane, welcome to the podcast. I'm so pumped to be here. Thanks for having me. Oh, man, I so appreciate it. You know, your your words and your work over a number of years have been really formational for my wife and I. And man, I'm just really excited for more people who are our audience to get to hear from it. I know many of them probably know who you are and may have read some of your books. Um, but for those who don't, could you just give a quick introduction into who you are and what you're up to? Sure, man. Yeah. Well, thanks for listening in, everybody. I, I, I'm a Tennessee boy that fell in love with Jesus in the Bible Belt down there. And uh, I had, you know, this real sincere faith experience, you know, began to try to follow Jesus. And that's also where I became pretty familiar with the contradictions that we sometimes see in the church. And uh uh, even around things like uh, what we're talking, you know, I've, I've been doing a lot of work around violence. Um, and we, you know, I grew up saying I was pro-life, but I probably would be more accurate to say I was pro-birth, you know, or anti-abortion, because I really only thought about that issue and not things like gun violence or the death penalty or immigration or the environment or war, you know, in terms of what it means to champion life too. So yeah. my, my, horizon has expanded. Uh, but, you know, things really got got going for me when I was in Philly. I went to a little college, Eastern University, Christian Liberal Arts College, you know, outside of Philly. Um, and I studied sociology. So I, I really like how Karl Barth, uh, you know, one of the great thinkers of the church, he said, we've got to read the Bible in one hand, but we need to read the newspaper in the, uh, newspaper in the other so that our faith doesn't just become a ticket into heaven and an excuse to ignore the world we live in, you know, and that that's really my passion. I, I look at Jesus talking about the kingdom of God, and it's not just something that we go up to when we die, but something we're to usher in while we live uh, the kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. So that's what I've been doing, you know, started a little community on the north side of Philly um, some 25 years ago, just to throw all my cards wow. on the table there, man. And, uh, <laughs> that community is called the simple way and, uh, still going strong. Uh, more recently I've been living on a school bus. Apparently this is a thing, Phil, a, the schooly movement, um, turning school buses into tiny houses. So we got a school bus that's turned into a little solar powered tiny house with a compost and toilet. And, uh, that that's where we're living now and uh still got our our community in philly but we've been spending some time traveling and visiting our family down in tennessee north carolina so yeah man it sounds like a ton of fun i mean that living on a bus i mean that's cool that's that's a fun way to go yeah uh, you know it's one of those things you're not quite sure how fun it will be until you do it but we really (laughs) liked it my wife uh, you know, she, uh, w- with a little wink to Joel Steen's book, The Best Life Now, she said she's going to write a book called The Bus Life Now and just, you know, t- throw it all out there. So we're, we're loving it, though. So and we I got know- all of our, our uh, you know, we got circus stuff and all kinds of stuff you can fit on a bus. Katie and I are both, we love the circus, so we're unicycle and juggle and all that whatnots too who knew my goodness that's that's really cool you know i so so you're traveling around doing a a justice work you guys are doing a lot of really cool things but the way i was initially introduced to you and i know that justice has probably always been a part of uh, of your movement but i was initially introduced to the simple way and that community that you were talking about in, in philly and the book a liturgy for ordinary radicals so can you take me a little bit into the the role that prayer and silence and these liturgies played for you maybe i don't know when did they come into your faith was it when you first became a christian was that a part of it is that something that developed later well, a little backdrop is probably helpful for the, you know, the, the community at The Simple Way. We started uh, out of a struggle for housing. So mm. homeless moms and children were living in an abandoned Catholic church. Um, and we've got abandoned buildings everywhere in North Philly. And they happened to be living, they, they had nowhere to go. Um, and so they moved into a abandoned church. 
excuse me. And, and they, they, um, we heard about that as students and we, we got involved. We started sort of a solidarity movement with them. And, uh, in this abandoned Catholic church, ironically, is where we kind of caught a fresh vision for what it means to be church. And we read in the book of Acts about the early Christians sharing everything that they had and worshiping in their homes. And, you know, what wasn't this mega church, it was more of a micro church, you know, it was in the world, it was in the streets, they were worshiping in their homes. We were very driven to try to reimagine that. So that kind of started the community there, but we were very big activists. You know, we were fighting unjust laws and things like, um, you know, the prison industry and the war in Iraq and Afghanistan and all those things. And, um, and I, I did begin to see that, you know, sometimes we, this, this dance between prayer and action or uh, faith and works, you know, it's, it's all, um, many of these things are, are like blades of scissors. They, they need to work together to, to be effective. And we were maybe better at the activism than at the prayer. And I know a lot of folks that um, are good at prayer, but they're not as good at action. And if we're not careful, prayer can become a place where we hide, you know, like all the politicians and preachers that after a mass shooting, they say we offer thoughts and prayers, you know, but then they, uh, uh, don't do anything that to take action that that might prevent more mass shootings. So I think that they, they really have to go together. Um, but you mentioned common prayer and uh, the liturgy for ordinary radicals. Uh, I spent some time in India and with Mother Teresa and the sisters in Calcutta. And one of the things that I learned there is a depth of prayer mm-hmm. that, uh, w- w- you know, a lot of what I grew up growing up, um, you know, like, like the way I thought about prayer was that we're making requests to God. You know, we even called it prayer requests. And that that is a part of prayer, but I think it's um, a very shallow understanding in some ways if all that we're doing when we pray is making requests to God. Like uh, my friend's son, you know, was going up to pray and he said, I'm going up to pray. Does anybody want anything? You know, <laughs> rattling off a you know, list. Um, but in India, Mother Teresa and the, the sisters of the missionaries of charity, they prayed all the time and it was integrated into their life of service, which was really, really rigorous service, you know, holding people's hands as they died, rescuing kids from train stations that didn't have families and were now, you know, orphans. And, you know, all this work was just covered and immersed in prayer. But the prayers that we prayed were not just us trying to get God to do what we want God to do, but they were more about us trying to get ourselves to do uh, and to be who God wants us to be. So, I, you know, just one example of that was one of the prayers we prayed in, in India every day that is now in our book of prayer, common prayer, is, uh, Dear Jesus, may every person I come in contact with feel your presence in my soul. May I leave off your fragrance everywhere I go. So, you know, that prayer is literally about being filled with the spirit so that we can take God's love into the world. And that that's kind of a different or, you know, a deeper version of prayer um, that we might be able to say with Paul, the life I live, I no longer live, but Jesus lives in me. So that constant refilling of ourselves. And, um, you know, just one other thought on this is Mother Teresa was so passionate about the communion. Um, Eucharist. Every single day she wanted it. Even when she was in the hospital, she wanted communion, uh, the Eucharist. And, you know, I, I think back to my my uh, early days as a Methodist, and we would sort of duck out of the communion part of the service to beat the traffic. <laughs> we just put that out there. But for Mother Teresa, you know, this was the food that we eat. It is the spiritual, you know, nourishment of our lives. And you know, one of the Catholic nuns said it well. We were talking about why do we do communion every day? And she said, Well, you've heard it said, we are what we eat. Mm. And she's like, That that's exactly what we're reminding ourselves of. You know, we're the ones that are being transformed by the Eucharist. We're being, you know, we're becoming uh the the body and the blood of Jesus to the world, to lay to to be the body of Christ um in the world. And uh so man, that's that's it. That's the that's why the, the, the Catholics call it the sacraments, right? It's a holy yeah. mystery. It's beautiful. But all that, you know, became a part of my prayer life that we've built into common prayer. So, um, you know, out of that internal 
quest ourselves to be better at prayer and integrating it with our activism, uh, we created Common Prayer, and it was dozens and dozens of folks. We had Orthodox folks, um, we had Catholic folks, we had uh, Charismatic, Anabaptists, like about every you know little part of the church uh, represented. And we we said, what are the best songs? You know, what what mm. are the the best hits of the church in the, in your part of it? And we compiled those together in fifty different songs that are you know old African spirituals and freedom songs and hymns and maybe a few contemporary worship songs, you know, just, just enough. Um, <laughs> they, they, they cost a lot of money to buy the new songs. So we yeah. got a lot of old songs, in it. but then, you know, prayers, some of the prayers I learned in India. Um, and then we have dates that we remember through the year mm. and, uh, and saints, you know, uh, uh, with a big S and little S, you know, who are the people that we want to remember? And I, I guess I would say the, best definition of a saint is somebody that has left off the fragrance of Jesus, you know, that their lives point us to Jesus. So we remember all kinds of great people throughout history uh, in the prayer book. That's a beautiful prayer. And I, I, I appreciate it because as you said, there's all these dimensions to it and it's meant to be done with others. Um, one of the big things we talk about here at Rua Space is, you know, spending time in silence and, and these practices sort of where you, you know, the words of St. Teresa of Avila, you know, the going into the interior castle or Jesus, you know, going into your room. But there's something also beautiful and necessary about doing it with community as well. And so I really appreciate how you brought that in. What were some of the, the aspects of, of entering into song and prayer and community? Maybe, maybe something that, that uh, heightened the experience and maybe something where doing it with others got really challenging. Yeah, so we, we try, we've tried to build in room for diversity when it comes to ways that we think about prayer, right? There's folks that really are energized by the ancient prayers, which can be a little bit more liturgical, you know, um, uh, like call and response type prayers. Um, and then there's people that are really energized by freeform praying, you know, just like um, whether it's speaking in tongues or just... Uh, um, offering prayers of our hearts, you know, um, and, and so we, we kind of build in all of that. Um, and, uh, when, when it comes to, um, some of the other, uh, parts of our prayer life, I think that we, 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 we there's, there's kind of every tradition has some gems that we can mm -hmm. bring out of it and maybe a few bones that we, we can spit out, you know? So I think we've tried to realize that the church is big and Jesus's longest prayer that we have recorded in the book of John is, is that we would be one as God is one. He just keeps saying that over and over. And when we did common prayer, we discovered that there are over 35,000 denominations of Christianity, 35,000. And yet Jesus's longest prayer is that we would be one as God is one. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of trying to live into that, right? That, that being this united church is not about homage, uh, like homogenizing. Mm -hmm. It's about harmonizing those different traditions. It's not about sameness, but oneness. And oneness can come most powerfully in the context of diversity, you know, think about a symphony like, uh, or orchestra or something, you know, it's, it's a uh, beautiful because you have lots of different instruments playing together. I mean, you don't want a whole, a whole orchestra of French horns, you know? Yeah, yeah. no, no doubt. But I, I, that is one of the problems we're facing right now is the body of Christ though, is our, our suspicion of the other, of people from other traditions. And, you know, like you mentioned going and seeing Mother Teresa, and I'm, I'm very close to a Franciscan who obviously is Catholic. And there's some people who look at some of those practices, you know, say Lexio Divina, or even some of the beliefs of other sort of um, Christian denominations and such. When it comes then to praying together, what, what did you find helpful for, for that unity? What, what have you guys sort of found in your conversations that helps bring people together that maybe the rest of us who are trying to do this could glean some wisdom from? Well, a couple of thoughts on that are, are one is I think we've got to have a foot in the world. Um, uh, and Jesus did that. You know, he's, he's in the streets. He's in people's homes. He's, you know, out there constantly interrupted by a crisis or, I mean, he's living in the world, right? Um, but he's also a person that you see him 
take some time off to pray, you know? Um, so the integration of that. So I would say part of what we got to do is we've got to have our feet in the world. You know, um, one of the most powerful services I've ever been a part of was um, uh, on a, on Good Friday, which is when many Christians, you know, are remembering the, the crucifixion of Jesus right before Easter. And, um, and, you know, some traditions have the stations of the cross where we remember the, the you know, stages of Jesus's execution. Um, and we did that, but we did it in the streets. And we remembered the lives who were that were lost to gun violence. And I'll never forget, as it kind of culminated by the young people in our neighborhood that carried the cross, the cross was, was um, standing in front of a gun shop mm. in Philadelphia. And we remembered the, the story of Jesus. I mean, we read it from the gospel, you know, the women weeping at the foot of the cross and the agonizing death of Jesus, how he suffered such tremendous violence in, in his death, um, even to the point of saying, my God, why have you forsaken me? Right. Like the the beauty, the power of that. But then we invited people who had um, suffered their own passion, their own agony um, of losing their children to gun violence. And they shared their stories. And I, I got to tell you, Phil, like this one, um, this one woman came up afterwards and she said, I get it. I get it. And I said, what? And she said, God knows what it feels like to lose your boy. Mm. And she was the mother of a 19 year old that had just been killed uh, on our block. And that's the power, right, of the gospel and of the liturgy is that we remember Jesus' suffering, but also part of what we remember in Jesus is that God is with us, mm. that God leaves all the comfort of heaven to be born in a brown skinned body as a Palestinian Jewish refugee in the middle of a genocide, executed as a convicted criminal on a cross. Uh, all of that, you know, is this profound act of divine solidarity with the sin, the, the suffering people of our world, the effects of sin. Of course, Jesus um, exposes all of the violence that we're capable of and shows us how to subvert it with love and with forgiveness and an empty tomb and the power of God's love even to resurrect us in a world that can feel so full of death. Um, so, you know, I think that all that to say, like, I think our liturgy has to be in the streets. You know, I just came back from the border of the U.S. and Mexico, and um, there's this amazing community there that has created uh, worship services over the border, right? Oh, wow. So they'll have folks in Mexico and folks in the U.S. and they'll sing worship songs in Spanish and English. And then they told me, you know, sometimes the spirit really moves and they want to serve each other communion. So they got to pass it over the wall. Wow. Uh, and, and I think that the power of that, right? But also like, I mean, there's a theology of that, right? That we're born again. And that now, uh, our love is not confined by a border wall. It's not um, uh, uh, ultimately our, our biggest identity is not as, as Americans, but as children of God, that if someone is suffering on the other side of a wall, it's as tragic as if it were our own flesh and blood. So I think really in the end, liturgy should cause us to have a different imagination, right? Our worship, our prayer life, should cause us to revolve around a different calendar that we're not just thinking of the holidays, uh, but the holy days, right? Mm -hmm. uh, um, it's not just like the 4th of July is something, but uh, the Pentecost is when we, you know, shoot our fireworks, when we remember the birth of the church, when we remember the big story of what God's doing. Um, so I, I think that's what, what prayer and liturgy can do is it can reorient us, you know, to um, a story bigger than America, a story bigger than just our own personal story, though God loves us personally, like we're kind of now a part of a bigger story of God redeeming the world. Yeah, I, I love that. that. That's an amazing story about what's happening at the border wall. You know, that that was a significant experience for me. It was not the border wall in the U.S., but when I was living in Israel and the border wall with Palestine. And yeah. 
I, it seems like what you're talking about a little bit is when we can begin to see the faces of other people, when it's not just about ourselves and my belief and me and this, but when we are exposed to others, especially to others who are suffering, it can't help but sort of open our eyes a little differently. And that, that changed a lot for me. You know, I'll never, I'll never forget walking through the checkpoint. And I had an American passport, right? I have no other passport. That's the only one I have. And all these Palestinian men standing in line and the, the guards all pushed me to the front. Like I wasn't even allowed to like, no, 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 I'll, I'll wait my turn. It was like, no, 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 you're going through. And just the, 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 the difficulty of walking past all these other people who aren't being treated in this, in this just way. And I don't know, I just feel like that shifted. It shifted a lot when we get out yeah. in front of other people. Absolutely. I think that, that, you know, um, context is everything, you know, that, that Jesus lived in real places, you know, he went to towns like Bethany and Capernaum. I went to, to Capernaum, you know, and it yeah. had like 400 families that lived there. It was a little town, you know, so <laughs> I mean, you see all those proper nouns in, in the gospel and you realize that this is part of what Jesus did is live, come into a real body with a real name in, in a time and a place to show us you know, what love looks like with flesh on. And, and you know, these injustices uh, are have a lot of different forms in different places. And you, you mentioned Israel and Palestine. I've been there many times, you know. And, um, but when you look at that wall and the art that's on it, the pain that it, uh, uh, you know, covers up or tries to cover up, um, you get reminded of that almost any time we build a wall, to separate us from the suffering of another person, whether it's in, you know, Israel and Palestine or on the U.S.-Mexico border, like God is with the suffering, no matter what side of the wall that they're on. Mm -hmm. And, and, and uh, um, you know, I think of the story of the rich man, Lazarus, the, this beautiful story Jesus told where the rich man uh, lives in a, behind a wall. He lives in a gated neighborhood. He literally built a, a a wall around him that separated him from the suffering of a, a, a specifically of a, a beggar who's given the name Lazarus in the story. And, but the rich man comes to find out that not only did his wall separate him from the suffering and the poor, it separated him from God because mm -hmm. we are, we are made to love and to be loved and to care for those who are hurting. And so he literally locked himself into hell. And I'll, I'll have to say, you know, when I, looked at the layers of the wall that the U.S. has built, um, so much of it is driven by fear, you know, fear of these people that folks would like us to believe they're all rapists or murderers or in MS-13 gangs or whatever it is, you know, um, and yet the people we met um, over and over in detention centers, uh, you know, uh, missions, uh, shelters, they were kids and families and folks made in the image of God that um, are risking their life trying to find a better life for their children. And you don't just do that. You know, I mean, this woman that broke her hip, older woman getting over the wall, trying to find uh, a better life for her family. Like you, you don't just do that for no reason, you know? Um, and so I think that's part of what we've, we're, we've, we've got to do is, is be in proximity to the suffering. And that's what prayer should do to us, right? I mean, as we reflect on Jesus's life, as we take communion, as we do all these things, like they should uh, prepare us to be in the world and to sustain our hope, um, even as we see such tremendous suffering. Uh, but that's not always what prayer is. You know, it can, like I said, it can also be a place that we kind of hide and we um, end up being uh, uh, some, so I heard one preacher say, it's kind of like the huddle in the football game. Some people never leave the huddle. <laughs> they never leave the huddle to get in the game. And you forget that the, it's not about the huddle. It's about the game, you know? So, yeah. Yeah. You know, when you were talking about that, that story of the rich man and Lazarus and the wall cutting him off and therefore from God, you know, one of the things we've been doing is sort of trying to reframe uh, sin and this, this, this well-known phrase that sin separates us from God. Right. And, and it really causes me a lot of pain because I don't think it's on God's side walking away. It's we pull back from God in our lives. Right. And that seems to be that wall. When we cut ourselves off from loving and serving others, we're, we're cutting ourselves off. God is 
still pursuing us, right? But we're in a sense cutting ourselves off. And so when we think about spiritual disciplines and spiritual formation, it, it seems that just being with some other people who aren't like us or who are suffering or suffering like us or suffering in a different way from us, that can be in and of itself a holy sacred space where we connect deeper with God. Not even thinking about, oh, we have to pray or worship together, but just being at the table seems to be really important. Yeah, C.S. Lewis had a way of uh, sort of naming the fact that hell is often locked from the inside. You yeah. know, it, it's not that God's locking us into a hell um, uh, as punishment as much as God's allowing us the freedom to lock ourselves in. And we have the keys to get out through Christ. You know, mm -hmm. I mean, I think that that that's the uh, the, the irony is that many of the 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 hells that we choose, um, we, we, it doesn't have to be that way. Like the rich man had the keys to the gate, <laughs> you know, like yeah, yeah. all he had to do was get outside of himself, um, and be moved in love and compassion. So that, that's a, I think a really helpful way, you know, so we, we, we have all kinds of different distorted understandings of freedom, you know, yeah. and sometimes freedom can be the right to do whatever I want, whenever I want. And I don't think that that's true freedom in Christ, right? Um, that's the kind of freedom that can actually be really hurtful to people like the folk, the Christians who refuse to wear masks right now. Um, or the folks that are fighting for the, the right to own any gun and as many guns as you want with no regulations or restrictions, you know, like that kind of freedom um, can begin to encroach on someone else's right to live. And that's where I think, you know, our faith should redefine our freedom um, to wear Yes, we, you know, we may have a right not to wear a mask, but what does love require of us right amen, now? Amen, I, that, that's amen. the real question is what does love require of us? And I think God hates sin because God loves people mm -hmm. and God's trying to free us up to, as Jesus said, to live life to the fullest. Yeah. Right. And so, um, you, you know, just to be able to, uh, I think some of us might think I want to just, you know, punch whoever I want. Well, we, we might actually be slaves to yeah. our anger. You know, yeah. if you just sleep around with everybody you want, maybe we're actually not free, but mm. we, we are, you know, enslaved to the desires of our, our flesh that hurt. It can hurt people and it can hurt us, you know. And so yeah. I, I think, you know, that that's a, a, a much better understanding of sin, because a lot of it, I grew up just thinking God hates sin because we're disobeying God's law. And um. God's going to punish us for that. Just like a, a kid that, you know, sneaks into the cookie jar or something in the house or whatever, you know, and you're yeah. like, no, like those rules are there for a reason. Like it's because God loves us that God's trying to protect us. Yeah, no doubt. And, and I know for you, then one of the ways that you've been going about living this is written about in this book, Beating Guns. And you can you tell us a little bit about what Beating Guns is? Because I know on that bus, right, you're kind of going around and you guys are literally turning weapons into gardening tools. So let's spend a few minutes and talk about guns. How did this become something that you were... Um, that, that was close to your heart, I guess, is the, the best way to talk about it. Because I think it flows directly out of everything we've just been talking about. Yeah. So th this passion for life, the, the conviction that every person is made in the image of God uh, is what really compels me on so many things. That's why I'm not a single issue person. But the right. death penalty, you know, and gun violence in particular, the death penalty and gun violence became a real passion of mine because I saw that Christians on these two issues, especially are not the champions of life. We're often the obstacles. Um, and, and we, we, we're, um, the biggest supporters of the death penalty. Death penalty wouldn't stand a chance in America if it weren't for Christians. Um, I mean, you think of like every state execution this year, um, has been in Texas and wow. there's a, you know, Greg Abbott is a, is, in mass, you know, he's a, 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 a professing Catholic and yet he's executing people, you know, same in Tennessee uh, last, I mean, not this year, but in recent years, we've been using the electric chair and Bill Lee, uh, the governor of Tennessee is in church. He's tweeting Bible verses, you know? And so I think that that's part of my concern is that some of these issues go to the very core of our faith. Um, things like, do we believe anybody is beyond redemption? 
Uh, and I think that's what's at the heart of the death penalty. There's a lot of other pieces of that too, like our racial history. I mean, the same yeah, states that have held on to the death penalty are the states that uh, held on to slavery the longest. So, um, but when, when it comes to guns, it's very similar. Our, our, the, the biggest demographic of gun owners in America are Christians, white evangelical Christians in particular. Um, we own guns at a higher rate than the general population. And, um, I, you know, I grew up with guns. I grew up hunting and things like that. But it's, it's um, um, when, we, when we really have this um, idolatry of guns that um, we begin to, as the scriptures say, you know, we shouldn't put our, our trust in chariots and horses, but in, you know, in our God, we begin to, and, and I got a little visual. Maybe not everybody can see it, but this is a, a, a Bible case that a pastor gave me. And um, if folks are listening, it, it says Holy Bible on the front. It's a leather case, just like I had one of these, you know, in high school. I don't know if you did, Phil, but you open this one up. One of the top selling Bible cases in America. And you can see that it was made to conceal a gun. Wow. So it's not for a Bible at all. It's for the gun. And, and it's selectively, oh, you know, one like that. <laughs> and you didn't have one like, well, that's good. <laughs> well, I didn't, I didn't either. But you think like, so, I mean, the, the, the idea of saying that this is idolatry is not far-fetched. It's not hyperbole, right? Right. Um, that literally idols are things that we treat with godlike power, though they're not God, they make mm -hmm. promises to us, you know, that they'll protect us, that they will um, rid the world of evil or whatever it is, you know, and guns do that. And so we can create this idolatry. And I, I think between the gun and the cross, we have two very different versions of power. And one of them says, I'm willing to die. And the other says, I'm willing to kill. And it becomes really difficult to reconcile Jesus's command of loving our enemies uh, while simultaneously preparing to kill them. You know, I, I think that yeah. this idea of turn the other cheek and, you know, what we hear from groups like the NRA, you know, gun extremists is stand your ground, you know, and I, I think that, that those things begin to be in conflict with each other. So to me, gun violence, some people will say, oh, this is not a gun issue. It's a heart issue. It's a sin issue. And I believe it's both, you know, no law can change a violent heart or a racist heart. Only God can do that. And that's why this is a spiritual crisis. Um, but it's also a political crisis. Um, as Dr. King said, a law can't make you love me, but it can sure make it harder for you to kill me. Yeah, <laughs> and I, I wow. think that, you know, we can do a better job at protecting people from gun violence and from suicide. Two thirds of gun deaths are suicide. So um, it's impossible to say that we're pro-life and not be concerned about the more than 100 lives a day lost to gun violence. In my lifetime, we've had more people killed by guns than in all of the casualties of war, all the wars in American history combined just from domestic gun violence. So. Um, this is massive. You know, it's the number one cause of death of African-American young people. It's number two for all American youth. Um, so anyway, that, I think that's why it is a passion of mine is I care about life. And, uh, and I, I, I don't, I refuse to buy into these ideas that, you know, uh, you can't believe in the Second Amendment and care about gun violence. We work with all kinds of groups, hunters against gun violence, gun owners against assault weapons, you know, groups that are like uh, gun owners, but they just believe that we can do a better job at protecting life. And we're also people of hope. You know, as you mentioned, we're turning guns into garden tools. And I've got one. I don't know if folks are watching the video, but this is a um, uh, like a hand plow for the garden made out of a, a, a gun. And my wife and I have both been, you know, apprenticing blacksmiths, but we've learned to make shovels and, you know, jewelry and um, cr I make crosses out of gun barrels and uh, been doing all that. And it's very holy. It feels very beautiful to me. A lot of the events that we do, they center the experiences and the voices of people who are survivors of gun violence or have lost their loved ones to gun violence. So it's a way we can kind of honor their grief and also channel that, um, Frustration. So you talk about creative prayer. You know, we do a liturgy at the forge where uh, we invite people to take the hammer and they beat on the gun. And we also invite them to identify 
the the anger that's in their own heart that unchecked could turn into violence. Um, and we burn some of those uh, triggers of our, our own violence in the forge as we beat on the gun. So, um, and of course, all of it's, you know, inspired by the, the biblical prophets who talk about beating swords into plows, spears into pruning hooks. Mike and Isaiah talked about that. So that's, that's what we're going for. And it's a, it's a vision that the early church really caught on to. And they said, this is who we are meant to be in, in such a violent world. Whether you look at, you know, the first century or the 21st century, like we're a world so full of violence that we're followers of the Prince of Peace. Um, Jesus endured the most horrendous, horrendous violence without mirroring it, without yeah. succumbing to mirroring that evil. And, you know, the death penalty, our obsession with guns, so much of it is trying to meet violence on its own terms. And Jesus shows us a really different way. So, oh, so much good stuff there. And I, I appreciate you sharing that. Um, one thing that stood out, because I know some people listening are probably like, okay, so Shane is against the Second Amendment, wants to get rid of every gun. What would sort of your response be? I'm sure people come up to you and say that. Well, I would start if, if some folks really want to talk about the Second Amendment, um, who, which many do. I'm glad to do that. And I would start with James Madison, who was one of the authors of the Second Amendment. And this is one of the things that he said, the father of the Constitution. Right? He said that um, liberty can be endangered by the abuse of power, but liberty can also be endangered by the abuse of liberty. That's deep. Liberty can be endangered by the abuse of liberty. And so when they wrote the Second Amendment, they wrote well-regulated in it for a reason, that you shouldn't just be able to own whatever guns and as many guns as you want without any accountability or restrictions on that. It was to be well-regulated. Um, and, uh, you know, sadly, guns are one of the most unregulated industries in our world. There, there's more in our country anyway. There's more... Uh, safety checks on a toy gun than a real gun on a Nerf gun. Like if you shot my eye out, Phil, with a Nerf gun, I could sue Nerf. But you can't do that to gun companies, right? There's this immunity, which they exploit, please, you know, and make profit off of um, the unregulated guns. So, you know, we don't have grenades on our streets. Um, why do we have AR-15s, guns that are military weapons that are designed for one purpose, which is to kill as many people as possible, as quickly as possible. And that's what they keep getting used for uh, in you know, mass shootings. And um, so you know, I, I think I, I wanna have a better conversation on uh, guns and I, I kind of think about cars. You know? um, cars are not designed to kill, but they can, they can be deadly. And so we've done so many things, right? To try to protect people from cars. We've added seat belts and technology, airbags. We, we require a driver's license, a driving test, right? Um, if you abuse your right to own a car, then your license is taken away, right? Um, so as, as time goes on, you know, uh, we have new laws. You can't text and drive now that we have cell mm. phones. And all of it is designed to try to protect people. And yet with guns, you think about it, like I think there's technology, like fingerprint technology, that uh, could prevent many gun deaths. There's things that we could do to limit the capacity uh, uh, that a gun can shoot before reloading that many hunters, many gun owners are in favor of. So, mm -hmm. you know, all that to say is I think we can have a much more reasonable conversation. And the real problem, the obstacle is not gun owners, it's gun extremists. And it's the gun profiteers. It's folks who have built a living uh, off of exploiting that uh, unregulated part of owning a gun. So I, you know, I think I find more and more people just are unpersuaded by the argument that if they come for our AR-15s, they're going to take our hunting rifle. Now, I also want to say just quickly that like for Christians, I think there's a higher authority even than the, the constitution. <laughs> yes. um, and, and, you know, our ultimately our authority is, is Jesus and is the word of God and the word made flesh in Jesus. And so I would hope that we would have an even higher standard for being a champion for life, uh, a suspicion of violence as we worship a victim of violence who rose above it. Right. <laughs> like, yeah. So I, I, I would, I would expect that, 
Jesus's command to love our enemies, to turn the other cheek, Jesus blessing the peacemakers should totally reorient us in that conversation so that we um, are, are even bigger champions uh, of life and protectors of it. Preaching it, brother. <laughs> I love it. So as you go through this work, how do you, how do you stay encouraged and keep moving forward in the face of so many who are actively going against maybe directly the teachings of Jesus, kind of the things you just shared, who still like don't get it and don't see it. How do you stay walking forward and not just lose hope? the, The starting point for that for me is by staying close to Jesus. Um, I, I think that um, when we see what Jesus endured and even the loneliness, right? So when we, when we see Jesus saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I mean, think about that for a minute. Sometimes we skip over these, you know, things that we've heard before. Um, in that moment, God felt the absence of God. <clears throat> That'll blow your mind, right? Yeah. And so if we feel the heaviness uh, of uh, upon us, the long loneliness, as Dorothy Day said, then um, it's okay, you know? Um, But we also know the end of this story. And the end of this story is that life triumphs over death, that the the tomb is empty. And that's where we can say with that mother of the 19-year-old, right, that God understands our pain. God is with those who are hurting. And that's the second part of my response, you know, to your, your wonderful question is we stay near to the suffering. And I, I think that it's easy to become numb. It's even easy to become overwhelmed when we're only thinking about all of these issues on a big scale and we're being bombarded with tragedy every day on social media and all these things that are so difficult for us to process. I think it's, it's important to be near to those who are hurting um, and I often find that where, where we would think the most hopeless people are, hope resounds. I mean, these communities mm. on the border, some of the most courageous, hope-filled people I've ever seen, even in the midst of the most tremendous injustice. And I've found that almost everywhere, you know, in Iraq during the war. I found it when I went to Kabul and Afghanistan, you know, and I've been to these communities. And maybe it's why, you know, I, I often ponder why, you know, when people said that, uh, nothing good could come out of Nazareth. I mean, that's where God showed up. And I think that that <laughs> continues to happen. So we need to be near to the suffering of the world. And that keeps us alive. It keeps us human. But, um, you know, in that paradox, it also keeps our hope alive. Um, I, th- I think it's very easy to become narcissistic and to kind of implode on ourselves, maybe like that rich rich man in, in, in his gated world, you know, um, uh, and community keeps it alive. That's, that's the last thing I'd say, too, is that, you know, we we keep our hope alive by surrounding ourselves with hopeful people. Yeah. Um, if you want to be more generous, you hang out with generous people. If you want to be more courageous, you hang out with courageous people. We rub off on each other, you know, uh, and that's why I think Christian community is like coals of a fire. You know, we fan each other's flames. We keep it alive, you know, and, and we become like the people that we we hang out with. And so if you if you hang out with narcissistic, cynical people that complain all the time, we'll probably be a little bit more like that, you know. Um, but we try to surround ourselves with people that remind us of Jesus. Mm. But nothing replaces being with Jesus. You know, we kind of say at the forge as we're melting guns down this, you know, cold, hard metal. As it goes into the forge, it begins to glow and uh, it begins to take on the character of the fire. I mean, there's a whole sermon in there that I won't preach today, Phil, but, you know, like, and and as you take it out, it begins to harden. So I think we got to stay near to Jesus. And uh, we Mm. we sometimes say maybe what happened to Pharaoh was he just spent too much time away from the fire and the love of God, you know, so we got to keep near to Jesus. And then we begin to shine as God shines. We begin to have a heart that's malleable, you know, like clay. It's a really helpful image, something to keep in mind. If people want to take the next step, if they care about gun violence, what is something you might recommend if someone wants to get involved, wants to do something, what can they do? Well, I, I would sure invite people to um, uh, take a 
deeper look, you know, into the book, um, not, not to be self-promoting, but I mean, part of what we did was we try to amplify a lot of groups, a lot of data, a lot of stories that, um, really bring this home, you know, and mm-hmm. to look at scripture too. So beating guns and our website for that's beatingguns.org. Um, and we've also got a film that was done around, uh, the book called uh, by the same name, beating guns. Um, uh, and, and, um, uh, there's, there's a lot of events that we're doing too. I'll be in, uh, Rochester, New York in a, in a week, we're doing a gun transformation live. And so folks can find all that on my website, which is just my name, shaneclayborn.com as far as like events that we're doing and things like that. But the, the other thing we've all got to do, I think is, is figure out a way that we can, um, be near to those who are hurting and amplify their voices because things like gun violence, I'm not sure much will change until there's a fire in our bones um, mm-hmm. to, to try to do something about it. And the way that you get that fire in your bones is by um, these issues coming close to home, you know, and, and hopefully it doesn't take someone in our family getting shot before we, we care, but we can, you know, lean into those who have already faced that tragedy and allow them to kind of help put a fire in our bones uh, for whether it's gun violence or the death penalty. I mean, for me, being visiting folks on death row um, who are facing execution has changed my entire trajectory. You know, I mean, death penalty is a passion of mine because I know people who are facing execution, some of whom are innocent of the crimes that they, they were convicted of and, and some that were guilty, but are different people than they were 20, 30 years ago when they committed the crime and have done all that they know to do to try to heal the wounds that that they inflicted. Um, And also like murder victims, family members, you know, a lot of folks say, what about the victims? And some of the most credible voices against the death penalty are murder victims, family members who really recognize that violence is the problem not the solution. You know, you, you don't rape people who rape to show that rape is wrong. We can do better than mirroring the evil. And that's exactly what the death penalty does. We kill people to try to show that killing is wrong. So I think there's a lot of Christians and others that, that want to follow the way of Jesus, which shows us, ex- you know, here's how you heal the world of violence without mirroring that violence. Mm. I like that. Well, I will put links to just shaneclayborn.com, right? I will put a link to Beating Guns. You can find it on Amazon, um, also to the Beating Guns website. So if people are looking to go deeper, those are some great places to go. I know we're getting over our time here. I want to keep you for another five, six hours. But to maybe wrap up, could you offer maybe a story of hope or reconciliation from one of these events that you do or one of these examples? Oh man, there's so many. Sure. The first person that comes to mind is um, someone that we did a beating guns event with transforming a gun, but uh, she quickly became a a really great friend and and in many ways a mentor. Um, So her name is Sharon Risher and she, her mother was killed uh, in Emanuel AME church. So you may remember this is in Charleston, South Carolina, Dylan Roof came in and shot, um, a bunch of uh, nine people were killed and others were injured in this shooting. And her mom was one of those. Her two cousins were among those. Her, fa- her loved ones were killed as they were in Wednesday night Bible study in this historic African-American church. And so as we transformed this gun, she named all nine of them, right? And she's beating on this gun. And there wasn't a dry eye there. You know, we, we really realized that what we're doing is not just symbolic. It is poetry, but it's bigger than poetry, right? It, it's actually a, a public grieving and lament and, and honoring her, her loss and the loss of those lives. Um, um, and then afterwards, she kind of told me, she said, you know, everything I've kind of maybe thought about doing to Dylan Roof, I just took it out on that gun. <laughs> <You know? laughs> and, and now, not only is she acting on gun violence, but she is passionate about abolishing the death penalty, even for Dylan Roof, right? So many of those families, they said Dylan Roof, like he was, he still to this day, as far as I know, is really filled with hatred. Mm. And the answer to that is not execution. 
Like he needs to know Jesus and he's dangerous. I think he should be locked up. Don't, don't get me wrong. You know, but I think that to kill him might rob him of understanding the very redemptive work of, of Jesus. So I've reached out to see if uh, I could correspond with him. Sharon's this amazing voice in the world and y'all should check out her book too. It's called such a time for, for such a time as this. Um, And she, uh, Sharon Risher. So but that's why we do it, right? Because people like that, like their wounds, this is theological too, like Jesus had the wounds, right? The wounds are actually a part of how God heals the world. And so whatever scars we have from this world are not things to be ashamed of, but they actually become a part of our testimony, right? A part of our credentials. You know, you look at Sharon Risher and she can speak against violence because she's experienced it you know Mm. she can speak for grace because she's tasted it and um, I I think the scandal of the gospel is that God died not just for you Phil and for me though he you know Jesus died for us but Jesus died for Dylan Roof Mm -hmm. and um, we want him to know God's love and grace too (sighs) absolutely well Shane thank you so much this has been such an honor and a blessing. I, I am so appreciative of your time. Where else can people go deeper with you? Where else might you want to send people? Oh man, I'm on all the socials. I'm hip to be square, man. I'm on <laughs> I'm on uh, Instagram and Twitter. I'm not on TikTok. I'm not that hip, but I'm on uh, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. And we've also got this whole movement that uh, you know folks can look at redletterchristians.org. And that's from the Bibles that have the words of Jesus in red. Um, and, and, uh, uh, so, you know, red letter Christians, there's a, just a whole beautiful cloud of witnesses, um, musicians, writers, and pastors, um, just, just all kinds of folks that want to live out a Christianity that looks like Jesus again, that's taking Jesus seriously. So you can go sign up to join us at red letter Christians on our website and we'll keep in touch. That's probably the best way. So Thanks for the conversation, man. Thank you all for listening. Thank you. What a blessing. I appreciate it. Many blessings as you continue to love and serve, brother. Amen. Thank you, man. Hey, friends, Phil here again. Before we go, I just want to say thanks again for joining us in this episode. I cannot highly recommend enough going and checking out all those resources from Shane Claiborne. And then if you enjoyed this episode and you are looking for more ways to go deeper in your faith, to discover where God may be speaking in your life, I offer one-on-one spiritual coaching and direction where we explore spiritual formation, we explore your story, and we look for where the Holy Spirit may be moving in your life. So if that's of interest to you can also find the link to that in the description below. So until next time, friends, thank you again. May you go and love and serve the Lord. Grace and peace be with you.